Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. One of my favorite things about hosting this podcast is how many surprises are lurking behind every book cover. Here I was, wandering through life, thinking I was pretty well informed about the natural world. When pow, a book lands on my desk and I learn that whales used to walk on land. How did I not know that before? And how many other things do I not know about whales? A lot, it turns out. But the crazy thing about whales is that people who devote their whole lives to studying them also don't know a lot about them. We have no idea how many species of whales are alive today. We have no idea what some of them do for half the year, for the whole year. They're a great, big, living, breathing enigma, the largest mammals on Earth, and probably one of the largest mysteries, too. And they've been around for millions of years. But thanks to the work of paleontologist Nick Pyanson, we know a lot more about these cetaceans than we used to. In his new book, Spying on Whales, he travels to the ends of the earth and the oceans to puzzle out some answers about whales and how they fit into the story of the world's largest ecosystem, the ocean. I bike down to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, where Nick works, to take a tour of the place with him and to see what I could learn about whale bones. But first, we stop by the ocean hall to get a sense of scale and meet Phoenix, a right whale whose life-size replica dominates the gallery. For the record, how long is this right whale? 48 feet, and it has all this scarring and modeling and barnacles just like Phoenix, an individual whale, does right now out in the oceans. So because we have been photo IDing North Atlantic right whales for now almost 30 years, uh, we have a pretty good record of the life histories for these individual whales. And that's really important when the population is down to these numbers. You want to know what's going on, what changes have transpired over time with individual whales. And so that's what's cool about Phoenix, the right whale here in the gallery. So. So why are they called right whales? Because they're the right whales to hunt. They float after death. And there are only some 450, maybe, North Atlantic right whales. That's the entirety of the species that we know of. They used to be all around the North Atlantic, and they're not, because they have systematically been hunted for almost 10 centuries. So this species, it hasn't really recovered, and now it's living in urban oceans, 
a victim of just everything that we have as a civilization that we need. So that's what's neat about the story of whales. It's not just a story of human history, but there's a story that goes back into geologic time about where whales came from. That's a story that's uniquely told by the fossil record, by an over 50 million year history. Now, looking into the future, Earth systems are undergoing geologic scale changes in human lifetime, right? Carbon dioxide concentration is above 400 parts per million right now. The last time that was true in Earth history was three million years ago when there were very different whales on the planet. Uh, And that's what's really fantastic about being a paleontologist is you get the opportunity to explore past worlds on this planet that are almost as strange as other planets, but they were here just with different oceans, different climate settings, and different organisms. Yeah, I started your book thinking like, oh, whales. Okay, I know a fair amount about whales, but I had no idea whales actually used to walk on land. So, I mean, very strange indeed. So that gets at the double-edged sword we were talking about is that they're heavily impacted by the results of who we are as a species, as a civilization, both direct and indirect. And then there's so much we don't know about them. We don't even know how many species of whales are on the planet. That's a basic piece of information we don't know. We also don't know everything there is to know about their fossil record. That's mysterious for a lot of other reasons. Some of it has to do with the fundamentals of what the fossil record is about, which is that it's incomplete. And there are surprises in the past. Just look at this long, slinky one. And we can, this is kind of fun to walk. Yeah, okay, so right now we're walking under, I think, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six different kinds of whale fossil. Right, so we're going down the longest one here in the Sant Ocean Hall. This is Basilosaurus, which sounds kind of like a dinosaur. Literally means king lizard. And it's one of the first fossil whales to be named and described. And it keeps that name because of the conventions that we use to describe species. Um, So you always want to be careful about the names you use. Eventually, scientists figured out that it is not a reptile. They thought it was a sea reptile, sea monster that it was actually not that at all. It was more closely related to whales. It was a mammal. And it took actually until late in the 20th century to realize that they had hind limbs, including all the bones in their legs that we have too. So this is a view about what whales were like 40 million years ago. And what's cool, if we go even further back in time and walk here right under Myocetus. This is about the size of a large dog? Yeah, really large dog. I'd say, I mean, you'd be freaked out if this dog was on a leash. Um, well, yeah, and it's, it's not a dog. <laughs> it's not a dog. Uh, but it looks, you know, it has proportions not unlike a dog. Uh, and that's a crazy thing is if you look at the skull, that skull actually has key features that tell us that it's a whale. Otherwise, you'd have a very hard time saying this is a fossil whale. Uh, and so we need that context of knowing more about its anatomy in comparison with other examples in the fossil record to say, yeah, that's a fossil whale. Kind of river-dwelling, partially aquatic, four-limbed animal. Almost 50 million years ago, we have whales that were tied to land, and they undergo this great transformation in only about 10 million years to organisms that could only live completely in the water. What is the connection that tells you this whale was actually a whale? What is the key? So who are whales related to? Do you know know at all? Um, I know because of your book that they're related to hippos. uh, And also everything with two, um, I guess, a split hoof. Is that right? So even even toed hoofed mammals, deer, pigs, cows, camels. They have a special name called artiodactyls. 
and we knew that whales were closely related to them from DNA evidence, and we've had that since the 1990s. But what it took was finding a complete skeleton with all the bones associated to find an ankle bone with these early whales, and that has a very specific ankle bone that looks identical to even-toed hoofed mammals. So that confirmed that the molecular evidence is not wrong. And that's really the best we can do with historical kinds of science. You can't run an experiment to answer these questions. You have to look at multiple lines of evidence, like a detective. Should we go back to the collections to figure out this, uh, I mean, the second big question? So we sort of answered, how did they get from land to the water? But then how did they get so freaking big? I like that you focus on the how, because a lot of people ask me why. You know, I think why questions drive a lot of science. But scientists do much better with how questions, because that forces you to grapple with the evidence. And I think that this is a question that is not really just about one species, but it's about all whales taken as a group. It's not all whales are gigantic. Uh, but if we look at the fossil record, it is true that we do not find whale species as large as blue whales or phoenix. So why is that? To answer that question, Nick led me to the bowels of the Smithsonian, to a giant room filled to the gills with fossils, a swing space for pieces transitioning in and out of exhibition, and a spot where wannabe paleontologists can pose next to objects bigger than they are. Not that I did this or anything. You know, really, there's tons of cool things to talk about here. You know, among the giant terror birds and fossil sea cows and fossil armadillos and palm ferns and petrified wood, freshwater sharks that are 300 million years old, uh, we have fossil whales, too. And so this is the skull of a fossil whale. This is about 14 million years old from the Calvert Cliffs in the D.C. area from Maryland a glimpse into ecosystems from a time period known as the Miocene. And what's remarkable about this, this is the skull of a baleen whale, and it's not nearly as big as, say, the head of Phoenix, right? Uh, It's probably more close to the skull size of Basilosaurus. It's about three feet long. The total length of the animal maybe was about 15 feet, 20 feet long in life. That's pretty small for a baleen whale. That's among the smaller kinds of baleen whales that we would see today. And what this t- when we find other fossils like this, uh, they tend to be even smaller than this. So in the past, baleen whales were smaller. And we don't see the gigantic body sizes that we do today of today's fin whales, blue whales, humpbacks. A humpback whale skull would be some five times the length of this. So there's when you look at the full picture, that's an evolutionary mystery. And when you want to ask that question, you need to look at all the data. And so with colleagues, we assembled that that data set of all the fossil baleen whale body sizes that we could get. So we could look at what really happened through time. And what we found was there was a demonstrable shift that happened in the last few few million years. So over a history of over 30 million years for baleen whales. So baleen whales are descended from some of the whales that went back into water. Uh, and the oldest ones are about 30 million years old. This one about 14, 15, 16 million years old. Still not the time of giants for baleen whales. That time only happened between about two to four million years ago. And that's when we see the appearance of all these really large body sizes and the disappearance of very small body sizes. So there's a shift 
across the whole group of baleen whales. And what we argued in that paper published last year was that shift in body size matches a change in ocean ecosystems, a change in productivity. And this is a time when upwelling really starts to supercharge coastal ecosystems, make them much more productive, where nutrient-rich water from deep, deep in the ocean, colder, it's rich with phosphorus and nitrogen, that's brought up to the surface. The process that's driving that is shifting winds. And it stands to reason that whales got big in part to take advantage of that resource. And with that comes the onset of migration too. So being very large helps with migrating very far distances. And you'd only want to do that if you knew that there was a resource that you could definitely get at. And upwelling helps you get that resource? Upwelling helps you get that resource, but only in specific times and places of the year. What's interesting is that for toothed whales, so those are the echolocating ones like sperm whales and killer whales, they got very big too. And they have different resources than baleen whales, but their resources were also affected by this change in productivity. So a bunch of different whales who do totally different things had really good reasons for getting big and they could stay big because they had the prey available and all of that stuff. Do you think that's going to keep happening? I mean, I hate to make you speculate, but... This is an excellent question. So it's not just about evolving big body size in the first place. It's maintaining it. And the resources needed to maintain very large body size are obviously plenty, right? So uh, I think what you're getting at is that there's risk at being very large. And we know that's certainly true for mammals on land. You are at, at the risk of extinction, and we know that from looking at the fossil record, if you're very large, because you've almost evolved into a very specialized state. It's as specialized as changing your snout only to feed on a very specific prey item. If that prey item goes extinct and you've really specialized yourself, you may be at a dead end. And that is could be true about body size as well. Um, but nothing really tracks perfectly in that way. So we're discovering, for example, that blue whales don't just have to eat krill. They can eat a variety of other prey as well. So the answer to your question about which whales are going to make it, you know, are they too big to sustain themselves? The answer is going to be which whales have ecological flexibility. And that certainly seems to be true with humpbacks and gray whales. Right whales really seem to be specialists on copepods. Uh, They're crustaceans too. But I don't think that changes in ocean ecosystems are going to put copepods at risk. So this is a very complex kind of question. What whales are at extinction risk? Changes in ocean ecosystems? That may be a secondary threat. uh, And the primary threat is direct from humans. It's especially direct in the form of pollution, net entanglement. If you're right whales, right whales stand at risk of going extinct much sooner from human direct activity than they do from changing oceans. We'll be taking a short break filled with whale song, and then Nick will lead us back up to his office to explore one of the biggest mysteries he's tackled in his career a fossil site where dozens of whale skeletons were found intact by the side of roadway construction in the Chilean desert. Stay with us. Okay, so we were just in the fossil hall, and now we're back in your office where, incredibly, you know, you have a lot of fossils in storage, but they don't necessarily have the context around them. And you have to figure out a way to like export that context. And here we've got 
um, essentially contacts in the palm of my hand, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah. So what am I holding? What is this? And how did you get this here? Great question. So <laughs> these uh, these are miniaturized versions of fossil whale skeletons from the Atacama Desert in Chile. Uh, they represent fossil whales that are between seven to nine million years old, all from a site called Cerro Baena. And uh, we came upon this site just by the happenstance of being in the right place at the right time. What our colleagues uh, uncovered was a site with some 40 whale skeletons, along with skeletons belonging to other uh, extinct marine animals. And we had very little time to be able to assess or even study uh, these skeletons before they were removed from the site. The site is right along the Pan American Highway and doesn't exist anymore for the most part. You can't see the fossil whales like this. And so these are like an aerial view of the skeletons in situ in the stone, right? Yeah, that is exactly right. This is a snapshot shows you exactly what the skeletons look like laid out in the ground. It's almost like a murder scene where you want to be able to know what everything looked like. Because as soon as you try to remove these skeletons, you lose that context because you, it's almost impossible to remove these in whole. And then once you do that, they're still wrapped in plaster jackets. And so you have to uncover them and prepare them. And it takes years. I mean, you saw what it took for just one little skull. Imagine 40 of them. And so we had a scale of weeks to be able to decide what to do at this site to answer the basic question, which was, what's going on? Why are there all these skeletons here? Why are they preserved touching each other in some cases, almost like a log jam? I mean, here you have one, two, three whales all preserved together. So what's going on here? What kind of explanation can we test that is satisfying for all the data that we have about the site. And the big question too, which is like, why are they all intact? Because most skeletons don't look like this, right? So this is what was mind blowing was not just the number of whale skeletons, but how complete they were. So the story of what we did was um, the Smithsonian just had at the time a nascent program in 3D digitization. And I thought they might be willing to come out into the field to document the 3D objects as they were at that moment in 2011, uh, before we had to remove all the skeletons. And, and so they did, and they were able to use cameras and laser scanners and create these 3D models. It took several years to actually render that, all that data. I mean, there were no workflows for doing this. You know, there's no guidebook that says how to digitize a fossil whale graveyard. Um, so <laughs> what we did was ended up uh, creating these kinds of models. Uh, in some cases, we have this down to the micron scale because we're using laser arm scanners. So we actually know what the bone texture looks like and we know what uh, whether the bones have any scavenging marks. And all that information is really key for testing these ideas about where, where did this all come from? What mechanism explains this? A key piece of information that we uncovered at the site in the process of doing this was it wasn't just one site, it was actually four all on top of each other. And so that was a clue about the repeated nature of whatever was there. Whenever you see repeated patterns in science, your first guess has to be that there's an underlying single cause. And the best explanation we had that supports all the evidence that we see before us was harmful algal blooms. These blooms can create toxins that get concentrated in coastal environments and end up poisoning the biggest consumers around because those poisons accumulate as they go up uh, in food webs. 
And in some cases, those poisons can be neurotoxins and can kill organisms immediately. And that is the kind of death mechanism, rapid action at sea, that would allow for whale skeletons to at least arrive at a location relatively intact. And in the past, clearly things were much more abundant than they are today. You know, we're talking about the right whale on display. Whaling has had an impact reducing the baseline numbers of whales. Looking at this, it's incredible to see this giant site spanning miles. Um, It was about two football fields. Two football fields. How long does it take, I guess, from start to finish to work with, I mean, oh, I see your expression now, but I mean, to go from start to finish with these giant fossils, because I imagine the scale of the fossils changes the game a little bit. It's a little bit different from pressing flowers botanically, but also it's different from dealing, you know, with a small nautilus shell. Absolutely right. So I'm, I'm envious of all my colleagues that get to manipulate objects in whole in their hands, you know, and that's part of the reason why I have 3D whales reproduced that you can hold in your hands because that's so different from the actual objects themselves, which have to rest on carts or you can barely pick up because they're so heavy. As a consequence, that makes studying them super challenging when you have to work with their objects. It makes it a challenge to study them as living animals because you have to come up with clever ways to study them, either with drones or with tags or from photos. That means they're still mysterious, right? I mean, they're so big that you can't actually really get a handle of them. In terms of Cerebiana, we came across it in 2011. We had captured all the digital data in about a few weeks. And then it took us two and a half years to render all the 3D models, to process them, to measure them. Um, We also had rock samples from the site, too, that we wanted to study and analyze. We published in 2014, so that was pretty rapid, I think. Uh, We were assisted in large part because of the 3D models. I mean, I think a much more traditional story is like with the Panamanian fossil dolphin, where we uncovered it that same year, in 2011, uh, jacketed it, brought it back to this museum where it was prepared. All the rock matrix was removed from the bone. And then studied and compared, and that takes time too. We published that in 2015. So uh, four years for one one fossil. So that's it happens to be a new species. So that's that's pretty cool. Many of these might be new species here at Cerebiana too. Yeah, it's the scale of years. So you really have to think ahead and have foresight. And that's where you know I'm very open to new technology that may help streamline or accelerate the process of discovery. It's very different from what people could have done 100 years ago. Whereas, you know, the the logistics are the same. We're still humans. These are still enormous skeletons. We still have plaster. We, you know, we have giant moving equipment. In some cases, we have gas-powered vehicles. That changes it a bit. But true transformative stuff, that's with I think 3D digitization, that's really changing things. Um, That's something none of my predecessors would have had access to. Because think about what what would you do if you found Cerebiana in the 19th century? Have somebody illustrate it, you know? I mean, (laughs) hot air balloon, balloon maybe, you know? (laughs) So, So I think about that challenge a lot. That's one of my favorite parlor games is plucking somebody from the 19th century and bringing them into my office today and saying, and just wondering whether they could figure things out. And I think for the most part, they could. Mm-hmm. They would look at these models and say like, oh, yeah, very interesting. How'd you do this? Oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, it almost seems like magic, but they could get it. 
Uh, I don't think they'd understand the internet, you know, this, <laughs> this mysterious, invisible thing that connects us all. But they would, um, you know, I think they'd understand a 3D print. And that's part of the, you know, what makes paleontology so much fun is that there's a real tactile visual aspect to it. My inner 10-year-old is very, very healthy, pretty happy about my day job. If that's not an endorsement for quitting my job and returning to my childhood dream, dinosaurs, I don't know what is. So for more on the mysteries of whales and a quarter to midlife crisis of your own, do check out Nick Pyanson's new book, Spying on Whales. And in the show notes, we've got links to 3D tours of the Cerebayena site, videos of whale tagging, and some more heart-rending stories about whales connecting with people. You can also get a glimpse into the process of creating the podcast uh, with an image of your intrepid host decked out in field equipment and posing next to a piece of petrified wood. We'll see you next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.